Well, I want to talk a little bit about the gospel this morning. And um, you probably notice as we read through that passage that the gospel is one of the words that stands out over and over. I mean, uh, you know, Paul starts off saying he's, I've been set apart for the gospel. Uh, Then he talks about the gospel that, uh, you know, he promised beforehand. He talks about preaching the gospel. He ends off the passage talking about that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And so I want to just spend a moment uh, this morning looking at the gospel. What is the gospel? Um, what does Paul say about the gospel here? Why is Paul not ashamed of uh, the gospel? And, um, and then look at that and hopefully allow, as we speak about that, the gospel to have its own impact on, on our lives. So the gospel is the word gospel, which we heard in our series on, on Mark, we talked a, a little bit about this, but the word gospel is the Greek word euchelion, and it means good news, the good news. So when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the, the good news. But one of the things about the gospel that, we, that is important to understand is that when you just translate gospel to good news, you miss some of the significance of why the apostles used that specific word um, to um, talk about the message of, of Jesus. And um, it is important, even as we, we speak about the gospel here and we think about the gospel here, is it's important to, to understand something of why they use that word gospel. Like, why did they use this word gospel? Why did they use this word good news? Why are they, when they talk about it, are they saying, hey, we, I want to tell you about the good news? Is it just because it's good news? Like, hey, this is good news. Like, you know, why, why, why did they associate um, the, the word good news with the message of Jesus? Um, and one of the things is, and you notice this through Acts, you notice this over and over in Paul's uh, epistles, is that the gospel is deeply political. What I mean by that is, is not, um, you know, the gospel is trying to tell us, you know, which political framework or thought or whatever that we should follow. It's, it's not saying that, but what it is saying is, is this is that when the word gospel was used in history outside of Paul and the apostles, it was exclusively used for political figures. So when when they when the word was used in Greek tradition, the word gospel, it talked about a herald going into a town to announce news, typically of the emperor. So a new emperor had come to power. That the word for the announcement of the new emperor coming to power would be the word gospel. A herald would go out and announce to all the cities across the, the Roman Empire, then they would say, Hey, there's a new Caesar in town. This is good news. Everyone celebrate. Hey, you'll have a relief from your taxes. But then the new emperor will come and impose more. So, woo, enjoy your relief. But, like, it, it was a political announcement generally. They would say, new emperors come in town, or the emperors had a, a child. Everyone celebrates. Caesar has had a son. The emperor must celebrate. Or maybe, you know, the Roman Empire is expanding, and they've had a, a battle um, and in the expansion, they've had a victory. And then the herald would ride into town to say how great their emperor is because he has fought, uh, his armies have fought this battle and he's won. And the word gospel was always used outside of the apostles' context as a political announcement about 
the emperor or about the empire and how the empire has expanded and done something great. And basically, we should celebrate how great Caesar is or how great um, you know, the, the empire is. So it's a political word, which means that when Paul and when the apostles use gospel, they are being subversive. They're saying something really powerful about the nature of the gospel. They're being subversive. When they're saying, hey, we've come to tell you good news, and guess what? It's not about the emperor. People are like, what? 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 Like, what is going on? They're making a subversive political statement. In fact, Paul, as he's even using the word gospel here, he ends off as one passage as he talks about the gospel from verses 1 to, to 6, as he's talking about and unpacking different elements of the gospel, he is, uses a very political phrase, which is this, Jesus Christ our Lord. You couldn't say Jesus Christ our Lord in those times. Caesar was Lord. The emperor was Lord. Caesar was Lord. They would have to say that across the empire. Caesar is Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is politically subversive. It's to say, hey, there's a new king on town. There's a new king that is a, has been born. There's a new king that's arisen. There's a new king in town. When when the writers, when Paul, when the apostles talk about the gospel, they're making a massive statement about who's really in charge. They're making a statement about Christ. They're essentially saying this, hey guys, Caesar is not in charge. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is ultimately king of this world. That is the, the politically subversive nature of the gospel, is reminding a group of people, speaking to a group of people, saying, hey, guess what? Whoever you are, whatever the empire has been to you, good, bad, whether it's been oppressive, whether it's been beneficial, whatever the empire's been to you, we've come to tell you, hey, there is a new king on the block with a new kingdom and a new way. There is a new Lord. His name is Jesus. They're making a massive statement there. He's saying, this is good news. A new king has ridden into town. Jesus Christ is our Lord. You know, for us, I don't know, what, you know, every, whenever you put a group of people in the room, there's always going to be mixed views about what we think about many things, especially when it comes to politics. That's why, you know, what's that saying? Don't speak about religion and politics, like at the dinner table. Just never goes well. Yeah, so um, probably in our home we can talk about religion and we'll go okay. You know, but talk about politics amongst like the extended family. Ooh. It's definitely going south. Um, you know, so th those are, are, are such touchy things and probably who knows the different views that are in this room. But I think one of the things that is really good news, even about us and the different views that we have about South Africa, whether we get particularly tense about corruption or not, whether we feel particularly strongly about ESKIM and you know, load shedding and uh, everything uh, you know, like that, I mean, right at the end of the wedding, lucky they just got their first dance and boom, load shedding. You're like, oh, Eugene had written a song that he couldn't play and you're like, oh, Eskim, why? Why have you done this to them? Um, you know, and, and I mean, there's, there's so much going on, the, the, the tension of how things are run, the tension of um, the extreme inequality that is in South Africa. There's just so much 
that can get us politically riled up in South Africa. But actually, the, the apostles, if they had to come into the South African context, they would say, hey, there's good news. And this good news is not linked to any political system. It's not linked to any political party. It's not linked to any political figure. The good news for us here in South Africa is that there is a new king that is in town. Jesus Christ is Lord. We live under a different authority, the authority of Christ. And what Paul and what the apostles are saying is that this is really good news. The outworking of the kingdom of God allows people to live with a certain courage and a certain certainty and a certain measure of peace, even in the midst of chaos and difficulty and tension. How did the disciples manage to live through so much persecution? How did they live through watching brothers and sisters and family members and friends get martyred? How did they live through an, an oppressive system that tried to stamp them out? How did they live through the fact that uh, Nero, one of the Caesars at the time, would light them up, would literally set the disciples on fire and say, hey, you call yourself the light of the world, we will watch you burn. Like, how did they live through so much onslaught? They lived through so much onslaught because they believed Jesus was Lord. That even though in the midst of turmoil and persecution and the fact that sometimes they were going through intense difficulty in the space that they were in, Jesus was Lord. He ultimately is the one who is going to win. The kingdom of God has no end, as Paul said. It has no end. The unfolding of God's kingdom is going to extend to all the earth. One day Caesar will fall, and he did fall. And the Roman Empire did fall. And the British Empire did fall. And every empire will fall as ultimately, uh, you know, the gospel writers say, God is bringing every authority under the feet of Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The pronouncement of the gospel, the, the use of that word is a political word. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is King. While we live in tension now, the gospel reminds us that no political system ultimately will be above Christ. And we've seen that. We've seen empires come, empires go. We've seen in South Africa apartheid come, we've seen apartheid fall. We've seen how Different political systems fight for power and control. People fight for power and control, but ultimately they fall. But the gospel keeps extending across the world as people come and believe and submit to the lordship of Christ. The kingdom of God has no end. It is expanding. It is growing. It is bringing every ruler, every system under the lordship of Jesus. To pronounce the gospel is to remind ourselves in whatever situation we're in that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that is good news. There's a lot of reasons why this is good news, but that is good news. Jesus is Lord, no matter where we are. Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is still on the throne. No matter what seems to happen around us. And it's good news. Uh, as um, you know, many authors remind us, it's good news. It's not good works. It's not like, hey, 
you know, Jesus will be Lord when you do this, that, and that, and that. It's the announcement that Jesus is Lord. Jesus has come. Jesus died. He is resurrected. He does, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord in this situation. He is Lord over all the earth. And he is through his power and might and grace and love bringing everything under his authority. Jesus is Lord. The other thing that um, Paul reminds us you know, the, the gospel is political, but the, the gospel is historic. Paul does a couple things here. Is he reminds us that, as he says in verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son. What, what is he telling us? He's telling us that Jesus is not some new plan of God. Jesus is not some new idea. He's saying Jesus is the one who fulfills all the prophetic utterances of the promises. He is, he is the one who has come not just to start something new, but is part of God's original plan. Um, as uh, you know, one of the gospel writers says, Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. What, what is John saying when he says that? Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. He's saying Jesus has, Jesus was, is, and will always be God's plan for the world. That never changed. Right from the beginning all the way to the end, Jesus is God's plan for the world. The prophets prophesied it, the apostles witnessed it, and we experience it, God's Christ's lordship in the world even now. We experience it. Jesus is God's plan for the world. The gospel is historic. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in God's work throughout all time. This is the, it's not sudden good news in one sense. It is the good news that the prophets have been talking about. There is one coming. There is a king coming that will come in the line of David, as the prophets say. There is a king coming who will be like David, except he will be the son of God. David himself says in Psalm 2, the Lord who is my Lord. David himself, the king, prophesying that there is a king coming, and that king is Christ. Prophesied to Abraham. From your seed, uh, as Paul tells us in Galatians, singular, from your seed, God will bring people from all nations together under him. From your seed, who is that seed? Christ. And over and over, the prophets prophesied of the one, the promise of God, who was coming into the world. They called this, this figure the Messiah. The Messiah would come. When you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus the Messiah. The Messiah has come. The one who fulfills the prophetic word of God is coming. It's historic. It's rooted in the work of God in history. There's a reason why, you know, Sometimes we sing hymns. The reason why, I know we, we don't do it regularly, but we say the Apostles' Creed. Uh, there's, there's a reason why we read the Scriptures. There's a reason why we break bread. It's, it's, in one sense, it's a reminder that our faith is not unique to this moment. Our faith is rooted across history. And as the writers will say, from the start of time, our faith is rooted in God's activity in the world, 
which ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ. Jesus, the one who God had promised beforehand. And it's not rooted just across history. The gospel is rooted in a historic event in history. It's rooted in the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, when Paul says this, most of the theologians will say this, when, when he says this, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant on David, that Paul is reminding us of the humanity of Christ, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Like, what they're saying is that, you know, the theological thing of Jesus being both man and God, but that what we see in the historic events of the resurrection, we see the proof that Jesus is the Son of God. In his death, we see his humanity. In his resurrection, we see his divinity. But our faith is rooted not just across history, but in a historic event. The gospel is historical. A theologian, uh, a commentator called Mounts says this, he says, ethics and theology, these things that we often talk about around faith, are all subordinate to the Christ event. Paul reminds us of that. That the Christ event, the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ is central to who we are as Christians. It's central to the gospel. That Jesus' lordship, as we talked about, is proven through his resurrection. Because Jesus has not just conquered Caesar Caesar was always going to fall like every empire before it was always going to fall. Jesus conquered the ultimate enemy, which is death. The enemy that none of us can conquer. We're all going to die. It's, you know, what's it? What they say in um, Meet Joe Black? There's two certainties in life, death and taxes. You're going to pay your taxes and you're going to die. It's, it's one of those certainties. It is the ultimate enemy of our lives that we just can't defeat. The curse of the fall that the enemy will ultimately one day conquer us all. We will all die. But Jesus resurrected shows us that he's not just the king of over Caesar or over any empire. He is the one who has ultimately defeated the enemy of death. He has been resurrected. And as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Christian hope is in this fact that Christ has conquered the ultimate enemy, death. That as he rose, we too will rise with him. In fact, Paul says, if, G, if we only think of Jesus as a good example, if we only think of Jesus as this person who is sacrificial and you know, did amazing things, if we only think of Jesus in, in that kind of way as an example, he says, you know what, we are all to be pitied for that fact. He's like, why are we all dying if Jesus did not rise again? If Jesus did not conquer the ultimate death, why are we all dying? That's what essentially Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. Why are all the apostles laying down their lives? Why are thousands of Christians dying for this faith if Jesus did not rise from the dead? He says, if he did not rise from the dead, then we should be pitied. Look at us. Like, what are we teaching? Hey, go and love the world, and look, we're dying for it. Woohoo! Like, he's like, we should be pitied. But because Jesus did conquer death, our hope is in Christ's victory over death that we too will have victory 
against the human arch enemy, the one that conquers us all in one sense, has been conquered by Christ. It's funny that when, when Paul writes about death and Christians, he never says that Christians die. I don't know if you've noticed that. He was like they went to sleep. <laughs> he says they went to sleep. And, and there's a very theological reason why Paul, when he talks about his brothers going to sleep, you know, you know he's talking about them dying. There's a reason why he uses that phrase. It's because it's rooted in the fact that he believes that the, the ultimate enemy, death, does not conquer Christians. That they have just slept waiting for the resurrection. That as Christ rose, so we too will rise. The gospel is historic. It's rooted in the gospel events, Christ's death and resurrection. The gospel is the message of God's love. To all in Rome who are loved by God. I mean, that is a profound statement by Paul. Um, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Paul is doing two really profound things in that greeting. He is making a statement that the God, and during those times, the gods that they believed in were distant, they were, you know, standoffish. Love was not even a virtue during the time of Jesus. There were four major virtues, and love was not considered a virtue. It was, I'm trying to remember, it was verity, truth, courage. Um, there were four of them, but it was basically the virtues were around conquering, essentially. Be courageous, be truthful, you know, those kind of things. Love was not considered a virtue in the world. We now consider it the highest virtue. One historian's written uh, uh, the, the history of how the virtue of love came into the world, and he says this, Paul is single-handedly responsible for love being the greatest virtue of humanity in the world today. And he says, why is Paul single-handedly responsible? Because in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, you know, hope will, die, hope will end. All of these things end. But love will last. Paul said, you can have courage. You can conquer the world. You can do all of these things. But if you have love, if you do not have love, you are nothing. Jesus said that the greatest command is to love God and love neighbor. Through Christ and through the message of Paul, he elevates love to being the greatest virtue in humanity today. History has them to thank for the fact that we value love um, today. But Paul says this, he talks about God's people into a culture at the time that thought of God as unloving, as distant, as harsh, as he says, you are loved by God. That's a profound statement. God loving people, caring about people. The gospel is the reminder to us that we are loved by God, seen, cared for. That Christ's sacrifice is the demonstration of God's love towards his people. What does Jesus say in John 15? He says, for there is no greater love than this, than he who lays down his life for his friend. He's talking about himself. 
I have now called you friends, he says to his apostles, because there's no greater love than he who lays down his life for his friends. I am showing you the greatest love that someone could show. I am going to lay down my life for you. And Paul translates this into our understanding of the gospel. The gospel message shapes our identity as people who are loved by God. Called to be his holy people, or as I think it's the King James that says, called to be his saints, um, which is the identity that the gospel shapes. Not only are we seen as loved by God, but we're seen as saints. <laughs> you know, if, if you come from a Catholic tradition, we think of saints as people who are like super special. In fact, to be sainted in the Catholic tradition, you have to have, I think it's like two confirmed miracles with like eyewitnesses, which is crazy because some of the, the saints in Europe, like one of them was seen to have gone into, um, the one saint in Europe was seen to have gone into a dam and rescue a drowned child and walked out of the dam a year later. And that's a confirmed miracle. I'm like, what? Who witnessed that? That is the craziest miracle I've ever heard in my life. But he's a saint, so. so but I mean, to, to be seen as a saint, you had to have two confirmed miracles, you, like a whole bunch of things, you know, testimony of your character, etc., uh, etc. Et like that, super difficult to become a saint, unless someone can justify your crazy story about walking into a dam and bringing out a drowned child a year later. Like, how? Um, but like, very difficult, which is so strange because Paul calls the church saints. That is, is identity of the people of God to you who are called to be as holy people, who are called to be saints. Ones who are set apart. One of the things, and we'll see this just as I close, but the gospel gives us a new identity that is not based on us. It's based on him. So, as I said, in the Catholic tradition, to be sainted, you had to, it was based on you. Did you do so many miracles? You know, I, did you have a perfect character testimony, etc., etc., etc.? But Paul... Uh, uses this greeting as well in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, he calls the church to the saints in Corinth, he says. And one of the most fascinating things is when you think about Paul calling the church saints in Corinth, you just have to read the book of Corinthians to realize these people are terrible. Like, how dare you call that church saints? This is like dysfunctional church 101, Corinth. Like, you know, some guy is sleeping with their stepmother or something and people are tolerating like that, like it's okay. And then there's like chaos happening and people are trying to gain control over this. And he's like to the saints who are in Corinth. You're like, yo, Paul, like don't know what's going on. Like he's both rebuking them and telling them how can you let so much chaos happen in the church and at the same time reminding them that their identity is that they are saints. What is he doing? He is showing the Corinthian church that their identity is linked not to their actions but to God himself. And essentially the gospel the gospel is this continuous reminder that we are to live out of our new identity. Paul's rebuke of their character is a reminder to them to say, hey, you are saints, so start living like saints. You have a new identity. You are the people who are loved by God, who are seen righteous by God. So now start acting that way. 
he talks about the obedience that comes from faith. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. It is an obedience that comes out of a new identity rather than an obedience to obtain a new identity. The gospel reminds us that we are loved, that we are saints, that we are righteous, as we'll see now, that we are in Christ and we live from that place rather than living to try and attain that place. I don't know about you, but when I was a teenager, I, you know, I was... I guess, kind of like, as every teenager does, go through your own identity crisis and, uh, you know, brutal years. Don't know how anyone would want to be a teenager again. But, like, you're going through, like, so much identity crisis, so many emotions, hormones, like, change. Every, and you're going through this crisis. And then I was grappling with faith at that time as well. But so, me, so much of my teenage years was about trying to obtain a new identity. You know, if I go to church, if I do this, if I be this kind of person, maybe this group of people will accept me, maybe these people will like me, etc., etc. But when the gospel really hits home for us, it reminds us that we don't come to church to attain a new identity. That identity has been given to us through the gospel of Christ. We are loved. We are made righteous. We are seen as saints because of what Christ has done. And then we walk out obedience. We live out of that space. Finally, I want to end. Now, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. I don't know when you think of the power of God whether or not you think about the gospel. So sometimes, um, maybe you've been like me, I've read many books on revival, and you think of the power of God like we're going to be in a meeting and we're going to be praying and it's all going to be cool and then like fire's going to come. And I'm like, power of God, amazing. Or you're going to go pray for someone, and you know, you'll pray, and then boom, they get out of their hospital bed. You're like, power of God, amazing. I, you know, I'm not sure when you think of the power of God, what you think. For, I, I mean, through books I've read, and I, I love church history, and I, I love books on revival, I at times, I've gone through these moments where I've thought, like, the power of God is like when this, like, super ridiculous, crazy moment happens, and, um, and it's just, like, mind-blowing. Cloud comes into the room, there's fire, you know, someone's raised from the dead, like, just, like, cool stuff. And, um, and I've, I've, I used to, uh, more so than I've done now, but, like, often I would have to go to do pastoral visits in hospitals, uh, and uh, people hear that you're a pastor in the hospital, uh, especially like Addington was my favorite space whenever I had to go visit someone in Addington. I don't know what it is about that space, but when they hear you're a pastor, like that's that you're there for three hours, because everyone's like, yo, are you a pastor? Come, 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 and then you're like, cool, and then you, you're just going through the ward praying for people. It's like, it's pretty incredible. Um, but you're like, oh, Lord, power. Like, let's empty Addington now. We're going to pray, Jesus. Everyone's going to get up, go home, done. Like, you anticipate, like, there's this thought that this is what the power of God is. But Paul says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the message of Christ. The message of Christ 
the declaration of his death and resurrection, of his lordship. I am not ashamed of the message of Christ because it is the power of God. The message is the power of God. Sometimes we're looking for the power of God to come into our lives. We say, God, I need your power. I need you to do like some supernatural thing like you did in the Old Testament. I need you to send your Moses who's going to stick his rod in the Red Sea and it's going to part. I need this kind of moment in my life. And Paul is saying this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the, the message of Jesus is the power of God. Paul says, it is the power of God to rescue all of us out of ourselves, out of our sin, out of death, into new life. Where does God's power lie in bringing about change in our lives? It lies in the gospel, in the message of Jesus, in the message of his death and his resurrection, and that through his death, he has obtained new life, righteousness, a new identity for you because of what Jesus has done. That does not mean that we don't hope that God will perform miracles. It does not mean that we don't expect that at some points in history, maybe even in your own life, you've seen and experienced God's presence in a real and tangible way. But what it does mean is that when God breaks into human history to bring transformation through Mankind, when he demonstrates his power to save people, he does it through the message of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul goes on in Romans and in 2 Corinthians to say this, For the God who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, so that we may become the righteousness of God. The gospel is the message that God has broken into human history through the death and resurrection of Christ to rescue the world, you and I, out of the clutches of sin, out of the taintedness of our own sin, out of shame and guilt. God has rescued us. By not counting our sin against us, but by us becoming the righteousness of God. The gospel is an exchange, as theologians call it. It is the exchange of our sinfulness that Christ takes upon himself on the cross so that we take on his righteousness. One of the things as you read through the epistles that you would probably notice is how many times the, the writers, Paul in particular, uses this phrase, in Christ. And he uses this phrase because he understands that the gospel, the gospel message, unites us with Christ by faith, that we become united with Christ, that we come into Christ, in Christ, and so that when God sees us, he sees us not as we deserve, but sees us as Christ is, that Christ takes on our sin and we receive 
God's righteousness. Our whole identity is changed because the gospel invites us into Christ by faith. Into his victory, into his power, into his kingdom, into his identity. The gospel brings us into Christ, which sets us free, which saves us, which makes us new, which, as Paul says, not only invites us into a space where we're no longer conquered by the guilt and shame of sin, but that we now come into Christ so that we too will be resurrected with him, that the ultimate enemy of death is conquered in Christ, the power of God. The gospel is good news. It is the message of Christ that Jesus is Lord and his lordship has been displayed through his death and resurrection and his kingdom has come so that those who believe in him are united with him by faith. You know, today, I don't know what particular thing it is, it may be that you are struggling with or things that I'm struggling with. Could be shame, could be guilt. Probably best way to understand the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is I did something wrong, I feel bad about it. Shame is I am wrong, I feel bad about who I am. The gospel rescues you out of guilt and shame by giving you a new identity. Maybe you've said something like this, I've said something like this, so no judgment here, but like the world is against me. Ever said anything like that? Going through a difficult time uh, and you're like, the world is against me. Maybe you've felt like you're cursed. Maybe you struggle with self-hatred. Maybe you just can't get rid of the guilt you feel about specific things you've done. Um, I'll close with this one story. Early on, when I was at, started ministry, I had this opportunity to sit with a guy who was redoing a pool. He was an older guy, and he was gunnighting a pool, and I was sitting there, and he was like, hey, someone said that you're a pastor, and I was like, well, I'm like 21 years old. I don't know if I'm a pastor. I'm just like kind of trying to get in, do this ministry thing, and and he came and sat next to me. He must have been about 65, a big guy, like I'm six foot, so I'm semi-tall. This guy must have been like six foot four. He was massive. He was just a big, older guy. And he, he comes and sits next to me, and he just starts weeping. And like as a 21-year-old, you're like, what on earth is going on here? Like, and I'm not married, so I'm not used to someone crying at... I come from a family of all boys. That, that's a different story of having to learn a family of like brothers and no one ever cries. And I was like, dude, you're a big dude. You've got a problem. Like, we're South African men. Don't cry. Like, whatever the thoughts are. But honestly, like as a 21-year-old, I'm like, I don't know what is going on here. And he just starts crying. And he's like, you know what? I fought in the Angolan War. And, um, and I was like, cool, know nothing about that. Um, and he says, I've done things that still cause me not to be able to sleep. And I can't get rid of it. He was like, I go to sleep and I still see the horrors of things that I've done 30 years ago. 
And um, the guilt just racked, like it ruined him. His whole life shaped by the guilt of partaking in things he knew was wrong. The gospel comes to a man like that and it reminds him, it tells him that his life doesn't have to be shaped by the guilt of what he's done. That there is a God who came and carried his sin on himself on the cross. The gospel is the power of God that can come to a big older man wrecked by guilt. It is the power of God that can break through years and years and years of guilt and shame to say that the God who created the world is the God who stepped down into it and carried your guilt and shame so that your identity no longer has to be about what you did in a war, but about being loved by God, being righteous, being a saint. The gospel can penetrate into the darkest part of our souls and remind us that the Christ who is Lord is the Christ who stretched into the darkness of humanity and rescued a people for himself, giving them a new identity in him. Can I pray? Father, I pray for us as a church. We come together on a Sunday not because we are united by our love for coffee or because we are similar in economic strata or because we have the same color skin or because we have the same culture. We come here because we're united by you, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who calls us out of our darkness, who calls us out of our sin, who calls us out of ourselves in one sense, our worship of self to come to you. To you, the one who died and rose again and rescues us out of our brokenness, out of our sin, out of our shame, out of our guilt. Who brings us into a new kingdom. A kingdom governed not by ultimately failed emperors but a kingdom that will endure forever with you, Christ, seated always on the throne. Lord, I pray for us this morning that we would, by faith, receive the good news. And as we receive it, be made new, as the apostles call it, be born again. made alive by your spirit through Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you all. Have a good Sunday.